Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingham Church, and it's my privilege to lead us this morning in our study in the Gospel of John. Let there be light. There we go. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab one from the seat back in front of you, we're going to be in John chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 1. The name of the series that we're going through is entitled, Who is Jesus? And to answer this question, we're looking at the places in John's Gospel where Jesus tells us who he is uh, by making these I am statements. Uh, so again, John 10, 1 to 10, page 896, if you use one of the Bibles from in front of you. And as you turn there, let's just pray together right now. Father, thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Uh, Father, thank you that we don't need to guess who you are. You tell us in your word. And so, Father, in this time, I just pray against any distractions. Father, I pray that you'd help us right now to see who you are more clearly, uh, to experience your love more deeply, and to have our lives changed because of that. We pray this in your name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been looking for a new Bible. Maybe your old one got worn out, or you lost it, or you gave it away to somebody. But if you've ever been looking for a new Bible, and you went to a Christian bookstore, I imagine you were probably pretty overwhelmed with the amount of choices that you had to make. So the first choice is this, simply finding a translation. And especially if you're looking at English, uh, the amount of translations that are available to you are pretty astounding. So you got to narrow it down from a list, and you can probably talk to some friends and get their opinions on some of these things. People might have strong opinions. Uh, but once you narrow it down to a translation, you still got a lot of work to do. Uh, because within each translation, there's still tons of different kinds of Bibles uh, that you can use. Uh, some Bibles are ve- uh, geared for specific age groups, so you can have a youth or a teen study Bible. Uh, some are, are geared towards uh, people at different stages of life. Uh, You have Bibles that are massive uh, with large prints so that you can read them, uh, or you have Bibles that are travel size and and you need a magnifying glass almost to read. Uh, I've seen a Bible that looks like a magazine almost in the way it's formatted, and and I've also seen a Bible that's waterproof. Uh, I don't know why. I guess if you're really busy in the morning, you got to sneak devotions in somewhere, maybe brushing your teeth or taking a shower. I don't know, but uh, there's that option for you as well, and so... Uh, I shouldn't have been surprised this week when I walked into one of our pastor's offices and, and I saw a Bible that I'd never seen before. Uh, let me describe it to you. It was about this wide, uh, and, and it was in actually six different volumes. And so for the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, there was one big book. Uh, for the Gospels and Acts, there was a, a book. For the historical books, there was a book. And, and there was just these six volumes on this shelf. And I remember thinking to myself, how big are the words in this if, if it's such a big Bible? And so I picked one off the shelf to look at, and I noticed a couple of things. First, the, the words weren't that big, but the pages were a lot thicker than usual. And I also noticed there was no middle column in any of the pages, and there was no chapter or verse markers as well. And so as I opened this Bible, it looked in a lot of ways, just like any other normal book would look that you would take off a shelf. Uh, just paragraphs, and, and, the, and the pages would go on like that. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder why they would publish a book like this. Uh, not because I'm, I'm opposed to it, but I just know that every time they publish a, a certain type of Bible, there's, there's always a thought process behind, behind it, right? Travel Bibles, they want people to be mobile with them. Uh, bigger Bibles, maybe for stationary stuff. And, and so I was trying to think, what would, the, what would the purpose be of having a Bible like this? 
And, and while I didn't confirm this with the publishers, one of the things that came to mind was I wonder if they were trying to get people to read the Bible without kind of jumping in one place and jumping out and coming back in, but rather to read it through as one continuous narrative. Uh, you see, something that we do sometimes, which is sometimes unhelpful, is we jump into a text of Scripture. We don't look at what came before it or what came after it. And, and we can end up making some pretty bad mistakes of reading if, if we approach the Bible that way. So if you look at your Bible in front of you, I imagine there's a big number 10 before the section we're about to read today. And there's probably a big number 11 somewhere beyond that. And so the temptation is to kind of think that, well, everything after the 10, before the 11, that's all one section. And you can kind of read that on its own without anything else. And I actually want to say that it's a pretty dangerous way to read the Bible. And so what we're going to do before we jump into our text today is to, to set some context, to set some background where the gospel has been, where Jesus has been in this gospel, uh, to, help, uh, to help frame what we're going to read today. And to do this, we're going to look at the places that Jesus talks about who he is. Uh, Jesus has been revealing himself all throughout this gospel, and it's really interesting to see. The gospel of John is, is particularly interesting because John starts with this introduction where he kind of gives away all the answers right at the beginning of the gospel. So John goes right ahead and tells us right at the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, John tells us that Jesus is God and that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and, and John goes on to tell us all these things about Jesus. So as a reader, when you read John's gospel, you kind of have all the answers right at the beginning. But for the people that Jesus was ministering to, the disciples, the crowds, uh, the religious leaders, uh, they didn't have that luxury. And, and so they were left trying to figure out who Jesus was based on what he said and what he did. And one thing becomes clear as we read John's gospel. Your outline says this. Jesus chooses when and how he reveals who he is. He chooses when and how he reveals who he is. And here's what I mean by this. Let me show you. If I were to ask you the question, who is Jesus? I want you to think right now how you would respond. And don't think that you have, you know, 10 minutes to, to unpack all the nuances of this. I'm just going to ask you the question, and I want you to think in your head just of a couple lines that you might say. I say, who is Jesus? And you have the opportunity to say, he is, and then fill in a couple of blanks. Uh, maybe you get two or three chances to do this. How would you respond to this? Uh, now, of course, there'd be some diversity in answers depending on what you believe about Jesus. Uh, but if you've been a believer for some time, I imagine you might say things like, Jesus is the Messiah, or Jesus is the Christ. That might be one thing you ain't say. Or, or you might say, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, or you might say, Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. Right? You, you'd use these, these phrases as he, Jesus is, and, and you'd fill in the blank with as explicit a claim that you can make about who Jesus is. You would try to just say it directly as you could. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You, you'd try to fill in the blank as directly as you could. And so it's interesting to me that as we look through John's gospel, as Jesus reveals himself to people, he doesn't seem to say things as explicitly as we might expect him to. Now, of course, Jesus is all these things we just mentioned, uh, but when he talks about himself, he never comes out and quite says it like we just said it there. You see, Jesus was in a context where if you walked up to a group of people and claimed to be God, uh, there would be some severe consequences. Uh, these days, if someone does this, we just call them crazy and we kind of write them off. But in Jesus' day, if you were to make a claim like this, 
Uh, there would be severe consequences, including people maybe wanting to have you put to death. And now you might be thinking, well, isn't that exactly why Jesus came? To lay down his life for our sins? And, and while that's true, uh, John makes it really clear in his gospel that Jesus has an appointed time that he's going to lay down his life. And he's not going to do it a moment sooner than that appointed time or a moment later than that appointed time. And, and so Jesus walks through this gospel revealing who he is, uh, but doing it exactly when and how he wants to do it. Uh, and he uses metaphorical language sometimes. He says things like, I am, uh, I am the bread of life. Or he says, I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. And so he uses these phrases where for those who have ears to hear, they, they, they say profound things, but for a lot of people, they're scratching their head and, and wondering, Jesus, just who are you claiming to be? There's this really neat line in John 10, verse 24, where the people uh, ask Jesus this question. They say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So in other words, they're saying, Jesus, we hear what you're saying, and it sounds like you're trying to tell us that you're the Christ, but you didn't really come out and say that explicitly. So tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus says to them, well, actually, I have told you, and you just haven't believed. See, Jesus is revealing himself in his own way. And we see this especially in the way that Jesus uses I am statements. Uh, when Jesus says the words I am. Uh, it, it's a really interesting phrase, actually. If you, if you think about the history of the way this, this phrase has been used, it's quite, quite staggering. So thinking all the way back to the Old Testament with Moses, uh, you, might, you might remember this imagery of Moses standing before God at the burning bush. Uh, it's this iconic imagery where God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a bush that's on fire, uh, but not being consumed. And, and God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Moses has a bunch of excuses why he shouldn't do this. And one of the hesitations comes in the form of a question. In, in Exodus three thirteen to 14, we read this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so right at this pivotal moment of God revealing his name to his people, he uses this phrase, I am who I am. And says to Moses, tell the people of Israel, I am have sent, has sent you to me. Now, now it, it's a phrase that is used in this incredible context. But on the other hand, it's also just a phrase used in everyday life. And so it wouldn't be uncommon if someone, you know, asked a question as simple as who's hungry for someone to say, I am, right? And, and it wouldn't have any of these connotations of God revealing himself. So another example in John's gospel is when there's this debate about whether someone is who he says he is. Uh, in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. And there's some debate about whether this is actually the man that was born blind or if it's just someone pretending. And so they ask the guy, they say, are you the man? And he says, I am. And, and nobody, you know, nobody gets upset at the guy. Nobody freaks out and picks up stones and says, you're claiming to be God. This is just the way that you say, yeah, I am. It's me. And, and so you have this phrase where on the one hand, it can, it can be used in this context of God revealing his name to his people. And on the other hand, it can just be used in the most mundane of conversations because it's the way language works. 
And so what Jesus does throughout this gospel as he reveals himself to people is he kind of exploits this ambiguity in this word. He uses it in context where people are kind of wondering which side of the spectrum is it on. Let me show you an example in John chapter 6. Jesus' disciples are on the water and uh, they're, they're in a boat and this massive storm approaches. Uh, John six eighteen says this, and you don't have to look all these up if you want, but just listen. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus comes walking on the water, um, controlling the wind and the sea, something only God can do. And he says to his disciples, quite literally, I am, do not be afraid. Now, it, it's interesting. The ESV translates, it is I, and I think that's, that's a fine translation. Uh, but but you got to see there's a bit of ambiguity here in what Jesus is saying. Uh, on the one hand, he could be simply saying to his disciples, don't be afraid, it's me, I'm here. But you have to think in a context where Jesus is doing things only God can do. And then he says this phrase, I am. I imagine the disciples would have been scratching their heads thinking to themselves, is he claiming what I think he's claiming? Uh, Is he telling us what I think he's telling us? A little bit later, all ambiguity is gone when Jesus uses this phrase. Uh, Jonathan preached on this one uh, at at, uh, New Year's Day. Uh, Jesus is in a debate with the religious leaders and and they ask him questions and they're going back and forth about his authority. And, And Jesus ends up saying that Abraham saw his day and he rejoiced in it. And for some context, Abraham had actually lived thousands of years before. And so the religious leaders are scratching their heads and they're saying, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old yet. How can you say that Abraham has seen you? And Jesus says this line. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at this point, I think Jesus has come as close to just saying, I am God without actually coming out and saying it. And we know this because it says this, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, they thought he was blaspheming, that is, calling himself God, which it would have been blasphemy, uh, were it not true. And and so Jesus, we see he chooses exactly when and how he reveals himself to his people. And, And this is also the case, your outline says this, the claims that Jesus makes about himself are profound, and polarizing. They're profound because of what he's claiming, because of the, the audacity of some of the things that he's claiming to be and, and who he's claiming to be. And, and they're polarizing because people are having reactions to Jesus on one extreme or the other. And so we see this all over the place. When Jesus calls himself the bread of life, on the one hand, it says, many people stopped following him because it was a hard saying. But on the other hand, it says his disciples followed him even closer because they realized that he was the one with the words of eternal life. Uh, When Jesus calls himself the light of the world, some of the Pharisees challenge his testimony and want to have him arrested. Uh, But later we read that many more believed in him because of this saying. And so as Jesus says these profound things about himself, as he reveals himself, people are having reactions on, on both extremes. And I think there's a word for us today in that too. As Jesus reveals himself to us, we have a couple of options. We can either accept or reject, but there's not much room for middle ground. And so within this context, let's look at our text today in John chapter 10, uh, starting 
at verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We're going to stop right here for a second and just unpack this imagery before we look at what Jesus says next. Uh, This imagery, which is probably pretty foreign to us uh, in our context here in Burnaby, would have been quite familiar to Jesus' hearers. Uh, It would have just been commonplace language that that most people would have have understood readily. Uh, He's talking about a situation in which sheep were often kept uh, in his context. And so what would happen was usually a group of shepherds would come together uh, near a town or a village or a settlement, and they would together build a sheepfold for their flocks. So it would be multiple shepherds building a sheepfold uh, for multiple flocks. And so they'd do a good job. They'd build the walls nice and strong. They'd put a proper door in place. And because there was multiple of them, they would, they would hire someone to be a gatekeeper for the flocks. And so the gatekeeper's job was simply to stand at the gate. And if, a, if one of the shepherds came, the gatekeeper would open the door to the shepherd. Uh, and if anyone else came, the shepherd would keep the door closed, or the gatekeeper would keep the door closed. Uh, in this imagery, Jesus says, if someone comes into the sheepfold by another way other than the door, it's safe to assume that that person is a thief or a robber. And you can imagine that if you see someone in this context climbing over the fence or digging a hole under or trying to break through, it's really safe to assume that that person isn't one of the shepherds, but rather a robber or a thief or someone who's up to no good. Uh, and so that's kind of the basic setting. Now, at this point, it's, it's worth mentioning a couple differences between Jesus' context and, and our context in the West in regards to shepherding. So if I was a shepherd today in the West, I would probably, um, if I had a flock in this room and I wanted to get them out the back door, what I would do is I would get a couple of sheepdogs that I've trained, and I'd probably get on a horse or an ATV or something, and I would start making a lot of noise on this side of the room, right? And the, and the dogs would be running back and forth, and they'd be making sure that the sheep are being scared. The only way that they can go is through this door, right? So we would kind of work from this side, and we kind of push them where we wanted to go in that direction, In this context, it was almost the exact opposite. If there was a flock in this room and a shepherd wanted to lead them out the back door, the shepherd would actually be at the back door. And the shepherd would use his voice or maybe a call on an instrument, and he would call his sheep to follow him out the back door, and he would actually lead his sheep where he wanted them to go. Uh, Rather than pushing him out in front of them, he would lead them where he wanted to go. And, And it's almost, as I read this imagery, you almost might think to yourself, like, is this, is this even possible? Uh, like, this, this, this maybe sounds nice, but can this actually happen? And it's interesting that in some places in the East, this is still a practice that happens, uh, where the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and the shepherds know their sheep quite well. Uh, there's been stories sometimes of a, a couple of shepherds will try something where they'll, they'll like switch clothes and, and they'll try to call each other sheep, like pretending to be each other, and, and the sheep just don't go for it because they know the voice other shepherd. Uh, in the 1980s, there was a village near Bethlehem that was uh, being attacked. And so what happened was they confiscated all the animals in the village. All the animals in the village. They brought them to this, uh, this big barbed wire fence area. And they just basically said, yeah, these are our animals now. 
And what happened a couple days later, one of the ladies from that village came to one of the soldiers at the gate and said, um, basically, you know, my husband died not too long ago. This is my only source of income, my flock. I, I really need my animals back. And so the soldier looked at her kind of sarcastically and said, well, you know what, I'd love to help you, but the animals are all mixed up. No, none of them have tags on. So I, if I could separate out your animals, I'd love to help you, but I, I just can't do that. And so the lady didn't give up. She said, well, I'll tell you what, if I can separate my animals from the rest, can I have them? And he said, sure, thinking nothing of it. And so what happened next was her son came with a little reed flute and he started playing this tune on this reed flute. And slowly but surely, these sheep heads just kept popping up all over, the, all over the pen. And one by one, they started making their way to the door until eventually the lady and her son walked home with 25 sheep trailing behind them. And that's a cute little example, but, and it's modern day, I said, but it illustrates this point that the sheep knew the shepherd. Uh, the shepherd's voice called the sheep and he led them where they wanted to go. Um, this, this imagery would have been really common, actually, and wouldn't have been too controversial. For us, it's kind of like, oh, that's, does that actually happen? They would have known for sure that this is just an everyday thing that happens. Uh, Jesus is using common, common language and imagery here. So it's interesting that, that we read this in verse 6. It says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, I've just told you that this is really common, easy to understand imagery. And now we read that the people didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. And here's what I think is going on. I don't think it's that they didn't understand the imagery that Jesus was using. What they didn't understand is what Jesus was trying to say by it. In other words, they're saying, yes, Jesus, we know that shepherds and sheep, you know, work in this way and the sheepfold and the gatekeeper. Uh, but, but what's the point you're trying to tell us? You see, Jesus told a lot of parables. Uh, and his hearers would have been used to Jesus telling parables where he uses something really ordinary and mundane to talk about an incredible truth. So he tells a parable about a man going out to sow seed in his field. And it's not actually about, you know, tips on how to get the best harvest. He's telling us something about the kingdom of God. Uh, there's another place where Jesus even uses a parable to talk about the people that he's, that he's speaking with. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a story about a vineyard. And there's a vineyard owner who rents out his vineyard to some tenants. And these tenants are meant to give back the vineyard owner the harvest when it comes, and they're supposed to take care of things. But when the harvest comes around and the vineyard owner sends his servants to collect the fruit of the harvest, uh, the tenants decide to beat up the servant and send him away empty-handed. Uh, next, he sends some more servants, and they beat up those servants and even kill some of the servants that he sends to them. Finally, the, the vineyard owner sends his son, and they kill the vineyard owner's son. And so at this point, Jesus turns to the people he's talking to, and he says, what should I do to these tenants? He asks the religious leaders, and they say, well, these tenants should be destroyed, and the vineyard should be taken away from them. And Jesus says to them, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Uh, and Matthew writes that they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so, and so the people would have been used to Jesus using parables to communicate some deeper truth and even to tell something about the people that are sitting right there. Uh, even the language of shepherd and sheep would, would heighten this expectation. And that might sound a bit strange to you that you know, someone starts talking about sheep and shepherds and you would expect some deeper hidden meaning. Uh, but the Old Testament background, which most people had at this time, has a lot of language of shepherds and sheep. 
uh, that would have been floating around in their minds. So we can all probably think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, But there's other places where the shepherd sheep imagery is used that would have probably formed the background that people had in mind here. Uh, In the book of Ezekiel particularly, Ezekiel is a prophet of God who is sent to confront the leaders of God's people. Uh, The leaders of God's people have been charged to take care of God's people, to give them what they need, to provide for their needs, uh, to care for them. And they've just been failing miserably at this job and caring only about themselves. And so God rebukes them. And and listen to the language he uses in Ezekiel 34 verse 2. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you ruled them. So God's judging the wickedness of these leaders using the languages of shepherd and sheep. Uh, Because they have failed, look what God says next in verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Uh, A bit later he says this, And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. So basically, because the leaders of God's people have failed in the job God has given to them, God says, one day I will come, or the Messiah will come, and shepherd my people. And so already from Ezekiel's time, there's this expectation that one day God would come and be the shepherd of his people, or that the Messiah would come and be the shepherd of God's people, or, or somehow that, that would be the same, one, one and the same. But either way, there's this expectation. And, and so when Jesus, in the midst of a context of of conflict with these religious leaders, in the midst of him revealing who he is, saying some profound things, when Jesus starts to talk about sheep and shepherds, I imagine people are paying pretty close attention and thinking to themselves, all right, what is Jesus about to say about himself? Uh, Let's keep reading verse 7. Jesus says this. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Your outline says this, Jesus is the door of the sheep. Um, And maybe those words come as a bit of a surprise to you. I'm going to admit, I was setting you guys up to expect Jesus to say, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, but he says, I am the door. And of course, if you looked at the title of, of chapter 10, or if you uh, read a bit further, you realize that Jesus does call himself the good shepherd. And so we're going to unpack that next week with all the significance that that brings. Uh, but Jesus also calls himself the door of the sheep. And so what we're going to do is take, take a look at why Jesus says that he's the door of the sheep in this context. Now, now some people have tried to explain this by saying, well, Jesus says he's the door of the sheep, but what he really means to say there is that he's the shepherd of the sheep. And and how they get there is this. They say that in some contexts, shepherds would take their flocks out into the wild country, 
And, and there wouldn't be kind of this permanent sheepfold that they could take their flocks to at night. And so what they would do is they would kind of make their own sheepfold uh, with whatever was handy. So they may take some branches or bushes or rocks, whatever they could find, and they would build the sheepfold. It would be just as high as it needed to be to keep the sheep in. Uh, it would just be just, just as big as it needed to be to, keep all the sh- to, to hold all the sheep. And, and usually this sheepfold wouldn't have a proper door. And so the shepherd would actually lie down in the opening. And the idea was if any wild animal was going to get in, it would be over the shepherd's body. Or if any sheep was going to get out, it would be through the shepherd. And so they would say, well, in that case, the shepherd almost is the door. So maybe Jesus is just saying the same thing here using different language. And you can hear how, how attractive that sounds as an interpretation. Uh, the only thing I think that, that strays me away from it is the fact that in 1 through 5, the language seems to be uh, pretty specifically talking about a, a situation where uh, there's a gatekeeper and, and a real door and, and multiple shepherds. And so I think what's happening here is Jesus is just using this imagery and he's using a couple things in the imagery to say a couple of things about himself. Uh, like I said, he will talk about how he's the good shepherd and he's going to unpack that a lot more actually, but he'll start uh, by talking about himself as the door. And the time that remains, we're going to take a look at this. So if you would look down again at verse 9, Jesus says this. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Uh, In the world of this imagery, uh, Jesus is remarking that if a sheep can't get through the door at night, uh, all safety and protection for that sheep is gone. But if they can come through the door at night, uh, they find safety and protection. Uh, outside are the other wild animals. Outside are thieves and robbers. Outside are places where sheep can wander off to and get hurt. But within the safety of the sheepfold, uh, there's protection. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that they will go in and out and find pasture. And again, this imagery isn't of going in and out of safety, but rather realizing the fact that when day comes, you can't stay in the sheepfold. There's no food or provision there. So going in and out, being able to go in and out of the store was a way that the sheep would have provision of daily food and daily necessities. Uh, to, To enter into the door at night and to go in and out during the day, those are the ways that a sheep had the life that they needed. Uh, So if you're a sheep, if there's no door in the sheepfold, uh, you have no life. Uh, Now, taking things out of the world of the imagery, Jesus is saying to us, if you're a human being and you don't have Jesus, there's no life. Uh, it's It's a proverbial way of insisting, as your outline says, that Jesus is the only means by which one may have life abundantly. And if you think about it, it's a pretty provocative claim. It's a pretty profound claim. Jesus is, is saying that I am the exclusive way that you can have life abundantly, life eternal. And it was controversial back then. It remains to be controversial today because Jesus is claiming this exclusively about himself. And yet, on the other hand, we see that it's actually really inclusive as well in the context that Jesus is in. Remember, he's talking to religious leaders that he has been debating about his authority and who have been wanting to put him to death. Jesus is speaking to people that in a a short time will be actually approving of his crucifixion. And so the fact that in this context, Jesus says, whoever enters by the door will have life, that he's offering this life to people that will even uh, put him on the cross, uh, shows you that, yes, it's exclusive, but it's radically inclusive that Jesus offers life even to his enemies. 
And I was looking at the I am statements this week and kind of comparing uh, this one with some of the others. And I was just amazed by how many of them focus on life. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He says that he's the light of the world, which is also called the light of life. Uh, He's the gate that leads to life. He's the shepherd that lays down his life. He's the uh, way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. And and you just kind of get the sense that, you know, Jesus, are you just saying the exact same thing in different words with all these statements? Uh, And I think, no, Jesus is saying some things unique each time he makes these statements. But there's also a sense in which, yeah, all of these statements point to the fact that life is found in Jesus. Uh, we actually shouldn't be surprised by this either. John tells us at the end of his gospel uh, why he's written it. And, and he, re- he says these words. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's basically said, Jesus did a whole bunch of things I didn't have time to include, but I've included the things that will point you to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe in him and have life. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised that we see this over and over again in the gospel. Now look at verse 10. There's something really interesting here. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, The word destroy there in the first sentence uh, could also be translated make perish. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is saying here, I came that they may not perish, but have life and life abundantly. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? John 3.16 might be ringing some bells. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we hear Jesus saying it, and here's my fear. My fear is that we hear Jesus saying these words, and they just kind of bounce off of us because we hear them so many times. You know, John 3.16 is one of those verses that we say it over and over again that eventually maybe we stop listening and stop hearing it because we're just, we know it off by heart and we just don't really think about it when it happens. Uh, I, I don't want us to, to be there. Uh, this Christmas was, was different than any other Christmas that I've ever experienced for a number of reasons. Um, I got a call from my dad on December 21st. Uh, he's, he lives in Ontario, and he told me, he said, James, just wanted to let you know that your grandfather's not doing very well. Uh, my grandfather had Parkinson's for about 20 years at this point, and he had been in the hospital uh, already for six weeks when my dad called. And so when, when my dad said he wasn't doing well, I knew that uh, it, it was serious. And so my family, we, we flew out uh, to Ontario the next day on the 22nd, and, and straight from the airport, my dad drove me the two hours to the hospital where my grandfather was, and uh, when we got there, it was, it was one of those, I don't know if you've ever experienced something where you know somebody, but you almost don't recognize them. Uh, that was my grandfather. And so uh, he, was, he was at a point where he was kind of in and out of sleep. His eyes were closed. He couldn't really talk, uh, but, but he was just kind of lying there just breathing. And, and so I just kind of sat at his bedside and I just, you know, I told him I loved him. I, you know, said, reminded him of some stories of times that we had together and and there's times when a kind of a thin smile would just kind of come across his face just a little bit. And I just said, thank you. Thank you for being a godly example. Thank you for always taking time to be with me. Uh, a couple days later, right on Christmas Day, actually, we were all back together at his bedside. Um, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, my siblings, my parents, my grandma. And it was a day like none other. On Christmas Day, we, we sang hymns. My grandfather grew up in a church where they sang a lot of hymns. So we sang hymns. We read scripture. 
We prayed together. And basically what we did that day was we delighted in the truth that Jesus came so that we may have life. We just took such joy in that. It was actually sometimes in the moments that we, we reminded ourselves of that hope that the tears even came more because we were just, so many emotions are, are, are going on at that time. I remember one time my grandmother just leaned over to my grandfather and just whispered in his ears, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Uh, Jesus has paid for all your sins so that you may have life. Uh, my grandfather passed away a couple hours later that afternoon, surrounded by his family. And I tell you this story because I want to challenge you to say, don't wait for the, the moments when health fails or when crises come to delight in the fact that Jesus is the one who brings life. Don't wait until you're in a situation like this to, to remind yourself, oh yeah, this is an incredible thing that God has done for us. No, be constantly thanking God for the life that he brings. And the second reason I, I want to share this story is because I want to say that my grandfather's abundant life did not begin when he died, although it continued then. Uh, the abundant life for my grandfather began the moment he put his faith in Jesus Christ and had a relationship with his heavenly father. Uh, the word abundant life, it can be thrown around to mean a whole bunch of things. I want to remind you guys, my grandfather had Parkinson's for 20 years. Uh, so, so abundant life doesn't mean health and wealth and whatever you want. Abundant life means you walk with your heavenly father who never leaves you or forsakes you, even in the most difficult of moments. And, and so what do we do from here? Normally, if we, if we talk about Jesus, we say, you know, Jesus loved you, so you love one another. Jesus is merciful, so you show mercy. Uh, with this one, it's hard, right? Because Jesus offers eternal life. We, we, we can't actually offer that ourselves. All we can do is respond to the life that he's given us. And so if you're a believer, if you've already walked through the door of salvation, praise God. And I don't mean that just as an exclamation. I mean like, no, praise God for what he's done in your life. And if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus for salvation, I just want to let you know that it's not an accident that you're here. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you so that you may have life eternal. If you put your trust in Jesus, you can do it right where you're sitting quietly now and just say, God, I trust in you. I trust in Jesus. Uh, you can talk to the person who brought you, talk to myself or one of the other pastors. Uh, but don't leave here without making a decision about what you're going to do with this offer of life. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. Father, we thank you that you sent your son so that we may have life with you. Father, we thank you that this abundant life starts now as we trust in you and follow you, our Lord and Savior. I pray that for those right now who you're tugging on their heartstrings and you're, you're inviting them into this relationship with you. Maybe they don't know what that looks like or, or what that's going to mean, but I just pray that you give them the ability to say, yes, Father, I believe, and, and to take that first step as we all have. Father, we thank you that you initiate, that you loved us before we could ever love you. Help us to respond to your love well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.